Well, as you know, we've been going through the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. And uh, I trust that it's been a meaningful time. I've really enjoyed doing the, the study and praying through these things for you. And uh, parents, this is the moment you've been waiting for. This is the moment when you get to glare at your children, uh, give them a nudge, and say it's all about the Bible. It's uh, about honoring your mother and father. So this is going to be a great week for some of us. Others uh, if I feel bad, no. This is, uh, I've been really looking forward to going through this. By the way, I just want to say, you know, happy Palm Sunday. It's great to be able to spend this time worshiping with you and then really spending the week uh, prayerfully anticipating Easter and remembering all that Christ has done. And so I think this is going to be a very meaningful week for us going through uh, Good Friday together and then Easter Sunday celebrating. So today is uh, on uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. It says, Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. This is, there's only two of the Ten Commandments that are actually positive in nature. All the other ones are don't do something. So imagine, this is the one time that God wrote with his finger, the one time that he directly spoke to his people, and there's only two things that he said they needed to do. Not just not do, but they needed to do. One was to rest, to enjoy a Sabbath, and the other was to honor their parents. This is really, under this command, what we're going to be looking at is everything to do with our relationship with authority. Ross Hastings, a professor at Regent College, says this, This commandment can be treated as an area code for discussing all relationships that involve authority and submission. And so what we're going to be doing in this short time that we have together is we're going to be looking, first of all, at authority in the home, then in the state, and then in the church. And uh, I hope that you'll find this meaningful. So let's, first of all, look at the home. What's helpful to know is that this, uh, this command was primarily written not to children, but to adults. If you look at the context, it is all about adults continuing to honor their mother and father as their mother and father get into their old age. This was an agrarian culture. Uh, your value was often tied to your ability to work the land. And so as parents get older, they're not as useful as they once were. And so the idea is, is that even though your parents aren't as useful as they used to be, even though uh, you see an inheritance coming down the line, that you're still to remain faithful to them and honoring of them, even in their old age. The word honor means to make heavy, to take seriously, to know that uh, who they are bear weight in your life. The idea is twofold. The first is actually, believe it or not, to fear and obey. There's a kind of fear, there's a healthy kind of fear, and then that needs to look like obedience. To honor your parents is to obey them. And it looks like caring for them as they need that care. It's the opposite of being stingy. In Proverbs 19, verse 26, it says this, whoever robs their father and drives out their mother is a child who brings shame and disgrace. That's quite intense. It gets worse. 1 Timothy 5, it says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Well, if you've ever heard a guilt trip, there's one for you. That's intense. 
The idea is that, uh, that we're to, as children, we're to swap our stroller for a wheelchair. That the way that our, care, our parents cared for us and pushed us around in a stroller, that same way that they did that to us, we're now to give them in their wheelchair to help them around with the same heart, with the same kind of care. And the motive is not to somehow just appease them or do what's required, but to actually do it with a heart of compassion. Here's what's interesting about this command. It's the first command that comes with a promise. To live long in the land your Lord God is giving you. Now, I, uh, being Canadian, I am raised in a relatively individualistic society. So the way that I read live long is I thought, wow, if I obey my parents, I'm going to live till I'm 100 years old. This is great. I just assumed that it was about me living long, you know, and it doesn't actually mean that. It's less about lifespan, and here's what it's mostly about, and it's helpful to think of it this way. It's about being multi-generational. So it says when you live long in the land, it means you and your children will live long in this land. It's not so much about a lifespan, it's about there being a legacy that is gonna go from generation to generation. I find this to be a very interesting way to evaluate the uh, significance of our lives. When I think about my life or someone else's life, I think within our time frame. I think I've got X number of years and I've got to somehow make a difference in this world. And so I think that the way we look at significance is in terms of our personal achievements and what we can accomplish in our given lifetime. This radically changes what significance is about. It's less about what we're going to accomplish, and it's more about what we are releasing our children or offspring into. There's this view that success is less about me, and it's more about the pathway that I'm providing for the next generation. This, of course, doesn't just have to be about natural children. It can be about spiritual children as well. So I don't think it, it exempts uh, people who don't have children. But the idea is, I don't just live for myself, I live for something greater than myself. The idea of authority, obviously, is an incredibly difficult topic to discuss. Uh, so I want to unpack a little bit about what this means. There's a number of biblical ideas that describe what authority is. When we look at the relationship that God the Father had with God the Son that gives us certain ideas that help set up what this word means in a healthy kind of way. The first is, is that it's the idea of being sent, that the Father sent the Son, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. What someone in authority does is they send out. It's not so much about controlling, it's about releasing. It's about releasing somebody into their destiny. It means to serve. As they get sent out, we try to ensure their success. And it means that we're the source. The idea of, of headship is the idea of being a source of blessing and encouragement and provision for those that we serve. So I have a prop. It's a, not a very impressive prop, but it's a way to explain what we're talking about. We're talking about parenting. So this is one of the discipline methods that we have in our home. <laughs> no, that's not true. Um, so uh, 
if we can, if we think that there's, there's two ways that we can, we can look at what authority is. The first is that it's vertical. So you have the person, you know, up here in the black, and somebody here, and then somebody down below. And the idea is, is that, is that authority runs in a vertical direction. Now, what's interesting, when we read in the Bible, it tells us that the Gentiles, or those people who don't know God, uh, lord it over. And so the view in the world is that if you have power, you're at the top, everybody else is below you, and then you can use them for whatever agenda you have in wanting to create a life for yourself. I think a more biblical uh, description is that it's less about being vertical and it's more about being horizontal. Put it, well, I'll put it this way for you. So uh, the idea is, is that there's something that we're providing for another who then will provide for another. Now, one of the first things that we need to notice is that authority then is equal. There's not somebody above or below, not somebody who's better or worse. The idea is, is that we're all equal. This, again, is based on who God is. God the Father and God the Son are equal. God, isn't, uh, God the Father isn't better than the Son or more God than Jesus is. No, they're all fully God, equally God, if they have a relationship that's in tandem with one another. Every abuse of authority is this. As soon as somebody thinks they're above or below, that's where most human problems come from. So uh, I have, a, I have a, a, a doctoral degree in theology. I have a master's degree in theology. Uh, quick scan, but I think I have read the Bible and studied it more than most of you. hate to break it to you. Uh, and if you tell me something of the Bible, I need to listen to you as sincerely as I would listen to what I've learned. Because you have the Spirit of God as much as I do. And the moment I think I'm superior to you is the moment I'll misuse my position of serving you and make it something about myself. We all have the Spirit of God. We could all come to him and hear from him. We're equals. Authority has nothing to do with inequality. It can, but it shouldn't. Do you understand that? This is a very big deal. Every abuse that we see in the misuse of authority is the first thing that goes is equality. The second thing that we see in this multi-generational view of authority is that the whole point of authority is actually to build up the next generation. Paul says this very clearly, that I only have authority to build you up, not tear you down. My authority isn't for my own benefit, it's for yours. There's some things that I would like to be able to give you and I can't give you them if you don't receive them, if you don't let yourself come, uh, come under, if you will, what I would like to provide for you. Uh, what a fascinating thought that authority is always to bless the other. And so anytime somebody puts you in charge of something, it's not to build up your name, it's to give you an opportunity to make someone else great. So uh, God gives authority to parents so that he can bless children so that those children can bless their children and they'll live long in the land. Here's the final thing that's interesting about what authority looks like is it's always brief. Uh, maximum 80 years if you're born into royalty or something. But uh, 
Oh, we have a few who are older, so well done. You're, uh, you're <laughs> but the idea is, is that it only ever lasts a lifetime. How do you have a significance that lasts beyond your lifetime? By investing in the next generation. This is just wisdom. That if you want to have significance, the best thing that you can do with your resources is to give them away to the next generation. And as they give them away to the next generation, now those resources have multi-generational blessing. I find it incredibly tragic that people look in terms of what to accumulate instead of what to give away. There's a, we might talk about this when we get to the, the command on money, but the, uh, uh, somebody says something like, I don't remember it exactly, the only uh, money that has eternal value is the money that you give away. I think that's such a powerful way of looking at it. Well, the only authority that we have that has any significance is the authority that we give away to the next generation. So let's talk about this. We'll circle back to parents again in a moment. But I want to talk about then uh, the church and the state as being two other primary places in which we see authority practiced, uh, human authority practiced. 1 Peter 2.13 says this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Every human authority we're to submit to. Their authority, church and state, parents, God-given. It's not that God gave just authority to the church. He also gave authority to the state. What we need to understand, and we're going to go through this, is that what God gives the state is a very different kind of authority than what God gives the church. And when we understand this distinction, I believe it can be life-changing, incredibly clarifying. Let's look, first of all, at the state. The job of the state is quite simple, to limit evil. The state cannot erase evil. It can only control it. It can only keep a lid on it. The tools that the state have, has cannot produce a loving society. They can only create space for it. I remember when I was a, uh, a high school teacher, I was in a Christian high school, and so I could talk more like this, but I said to the students, I said it every class, I said, I, uh, I can enforce respect in this class, I can't enforce love. My hope is, is that you'd love one another. I can make you respect one another. I can never make you love anybody. And I think that's true. I think it's true. I think that the, a police force never comes into your home and says, I think you should love each other. I mean, that's just not going to happen, right? They don't care about that. They just want to make sure that there's a baseline of, uh, of justice. So what a state is responsible to do is to take a pluralistic society, a society that looks as diverse as this community here, uh, more diverse, rather, and, uh, and tries us all to be able to get along, regardless of our religion, our ethnicity, our gender, our economic, st economic status, that we're to all be able to have a, have a semblance of respect. That is what a good society should try to achieve. That's all that we can ask of them. But the question needs to be asked, what if they don't succeed? What if they're an evil society? 
What if they're a society, a government that's not representing God? Listen to this. So, uh, so 500 years ago, there was a very uh, pivotal moment in the history of the church, and it was something called the Reformation. And if you've done any kind of uh, religious studies, you'll be familiar with this, with names like Martin Luther and John Calvin. And they did something that was very interesting and that uh, has been told me often, and I didn't quite get the significance of it, but in studying for this, it's becoming much more clear. And that is, they spend a lot of energy trying to separate church and state. And I thought, well, whatever. Uh, yeah, okay, I get it that there was some mixing of, of church and state with the Catholic Church and that they were using uh, political means in order to set the agenda of the church and that doesn't seem very good. Um, but he went, they went to great lengths to separate these two things. Now, here is what John Calvin says about a government that's evil. Listen to this. This is a get ready to be disturbed. Calvin says this, a wicked king is the Lord's wrath upon the earth. He says that the reason why God lets evil rulers have their way is it's a form of judgment upon the people of the earth, upon a particular nation that is being ruled by a wicked ruler. What a fascinating thought. This harkens back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, where it says uh, in the Beatitudes, it says, blessed are the peacemakers. Now that is a loaded term, and the term that refers to those Jews who submitted to Roman authority. And so the other Jews looked at them as compromisers. You should be on our side. You should be trying to overthrow Rome. Rome is obviously evil, obviously doesn't follow Yahweh. And so you should be on our side fighting for freedom for Israel. And these peacemakers said, uh, they're trying to make peace with Rome. They said, uh, no, this is what's always been happening to us as God's people. God brings his judgment through evil rulers to chastise us, to bring us back into right relationship with him. God uses Rome to reform our hearts. And so to uh, revolt against Rome is to revolt against God and we'll have none of it. That they saw, get this, get this, they saw bad bosses unjust police force, the misuse of an army. They saw that as God somehow purging something in their heart that they would more clearly and purely worship God. What a shocking thought. In a democratic society, we don't consider that at all. We just look at somebody who's wrong, who's doing something wrong towards us. We go, you're wrong, I have a right, I'm a voting citizen. I have the right to make sure that you represent me properly. This is a very different world that's being described here. The great question that needs to be asked is at what point do we resist an evil authority? Now, we had to work this through during the time of the pandemic in our community. Because we saw that, uh, and I preached on this, you know, a couple years ago, but it needs to be uh, repeated here. Uh, when the government was, was bringing down laws that didn't allow us to be together and worship um, 
in person together. I still think, by the way, we're feeling the effects of that. It was hard on our community. It was hard on the church. And uh, I'm glad I'm not a politician that had to make those kinds of decisions. But some people said that's, uh, that's government overreach. That's the misuse of authority. They don't have the right to tell the church. You can have, uh, you could have strip clubs open, but not the church. Well, that doesn't seem right. And so, uh, so some people says, no, that's a, that's a moment when we have to disobey the authorities and we should still be meeting together. Other people say, no, that's, that's like good. We need to value human life and do whatever we can to see people kept safe. And so we can divide over these things, can't we? There's a, there's a, a, a phrase that we discern together that I think is still helpful even now. When do we resist evil? It's not when the government sins, but when they ask us to sin. It's not when they sin. Here's what we need to understand about every human authority, and could you please grab hold of this? This is so important. Every human authority is fallen because it's human authority. Every human authority is fallen. Uh, parents, governments, churches, every human authority is fallen. What these verses of obeying authorities is written to is people who are under Roman rule. Well, you think Canada has problems? This is nothing compared to the abuse of authority that was experienced when Rome has conquered you and is, uh, and is over you. A horrific, horrific misuse of authority. And the universal command in the New Testament is submit to all human authorities because they're God-given. And if your willingness to submit is dependent upon how righteous they are, you'll never submit to anybody. But there is a line. Uh, we must, when it says in Acts 5, we must obey God uh, rather than man, it's not when you're evil, it's when you ask me to sin, then I can't. You can sin, I can't sin. So as a pastor, it, there may come a day, and it may be sooner than I want it to be, I may be asked to perform gay marriages. The, the government might legislate that. I'm convinced in my reading of Scripture that that would be against Scripture. I can't do that. And I will have to face whatever consequence comes my way, but I cannot betray what the Bible teaches, and there's no human authority that can have me betray God's authority. And so I need to say no to that. And all of us in this room might be facing those issues where there's something that we're being asked to do that uh, would violate God's law, and we can't do that. So the state imperfectly attempts to limit evil Here's the grand question that needs to be asked. How does Jesus conquer evil? Not control it, but conquer it. This is where the church enters in. If the state is to stand for justice, the church is to stand for mercy. 
Romans 12:18 says this, and we've been quoting it a lot these days because it's so powerful. Overcome evil with good. Listen, there's only one way to overcome evil, and it's with good. You can never bully an evil person and imagine they'll come to repentance. It's not going to happen. It's just going to, you do something, they do like it just keeps going, and it's how wars occur. It will never happen. The only way that evil will ever be uh, eradicated is through goodness, through mercy. Dr. Bachmiel, again, uh, my professor from Switzerland, who sounds smart just by his very name, if you could uh, put up that quote, uh, the church should not be conducting police investigations and the state should not be forgiving 70 times seven. This is a fascinating statement. There are some things that the church must never do. We don't do witch burnings. We don't, we don't bring physical force in the name of Jesus. The church doesn't do that. We don't do police investigations. But the state would be ridiculous to forgive 70 times seven. We don't look to the state to do that. If somebody commits a crime, particularly a heinous crime, we expect justice to be served, and it should be served. The beauty, of course, of the cross is that justice and mercy come together, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But our responsibility, my friends, this is a huge responsibility given you and I if you call yourself a Christian. Our life is to be characterized by mercy. This is what we're to be known for. We trust that God will be ultimately just. We trust that uh, society will execute justice to free you and I up to exercise mercy. We can't legislate righteousness. If you've been a, pa a, a parent, you know this. You can't make a child be loving. You can control whether they hurt others, you maybe can make them behave externally. You can't make them loving. You cannot legislate righteousness. You can't pass a law and say that there's going to be no more abortion and then expect everyone to do It's just not going to happen. Those things can't be legislated. I'm not making a statement on, on laws. I'm just trying to explain a point. People will find a way around nor, and this becomes even, even more concerning, can you bully authorities. The church stands for mercy. We don't rally together, get a loud enough voice to get our voice heard on parliament. We don't bully authority. We can appeal to authority. We never usurp authority. And there's a very big difference. The church takes a different way. Do you remember, we talked about this before. What do does, uh, what does what the disciples say to, to Jesus? He's, he's died, come, he's, he's come back to life. The, what are the, what's the last thing they ask him in the beginning of Acts? Lord, at this time will you restore the kingdom to Israel? We're still waiting for you to come and restore our authority as an independent nation. He says, it's not for you to know the times and the places. Uh, but go be my witnesses. And so they stay under Roman rule. And get this. 
300 years later, Rome is conquered by the church. This is shocking. The most powerful nation in the world is conquered by Jesus without ever lifting a sword. Isn't that remarkable? Here's what I, I think about. I think, what kind of people for those 300 years staying faithful to Jesus, not railing against the government, but responding in mercy, allows at the end of the day for Rome to become a Christian nation? What kind of people could endure the injustice? You, you hear them being, uh, we read of them being uh, soaked in tar and, and burned alive, singing praise to God. What kind of people is that like? It's a people who usher in a kingdom that was not built in violence, but was built in mercy. Every nation is established in violence, except the kingdom of God. It's the only nation that will ever be established through humility and self-sacrifice, not through jockeying for power through violence. And this is what distinguishes the Christian church. We have different weapons because we have a different agenda. We don't collect power, we give it away. Matthew 5, verse 43 to 45. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, that makes sense. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's mercy. Mercy sends blessing regardless of what someone deserves. It is too simple to divide humanity between good people and, and bad people. It's too simple. As we've said so many times, evil runs, good and evil, run through, run through every human heart. And if we need to eradicate the evil, we should all be the first to sign up because we're all evil. And if it weren't for the mercy of God, we are all deserving of destruction. This is the foundation of the Christian church. We are a merciful people. We're not a judgmental people. We leave that up now to police authorities, and they'll be answerable to God for how well they succeed. And then we ultimately hope in the justice of God on the day of judgment. We don't concern ourselves with these things. We've got a very different kind of job to execute, and it's extending mercy to everyone who doesn't deserve it, otherwise known as you and I. 1 Peter 2.18, slaves in reverent fear of God, which is the only reason why, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. This is just remarkable. How do we do this aside from the grace of God? How do we live uh, being mistreated, but in reverent fear of God, submitting ourselves, surrendering ourselves? Is there anything more that I can do? 
uh, Carol Elson uh, reminds us very often, and I'm, and I'm so glad that whenever she does, and she did it again this morning in the, in the Surrey service, she says, whenever the persecuted church around the world asks us to pray for them, they don't pray that the persecution would end. They pray that they would be found faithful in the persecution. Doesn't that just, like, oh my. If I was under, I'd be, I just, you know, I'd want that evil dictator to be brought down and justice, no, they just say, can we be found faithful? Because we know that the church thrives under persecution. Why does the church thrive under persecution? Because it purifies our mercy. Going back to parents, um, Bob Birch, who actually baptized Debbie many years ago, he was quoted in a book. He says this, it is a painful journey from our earthly fathers to our heavenly father. And that's true, isn't it? That it's hard. You start with earthly fathers who aren't that great. But somehow, us working through our relationship with our earthly mothers and fathers somehow leads us to worship God the Father. And it's always a miraculous journey. How does this happen? James 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment. My friends, how are we going to conquer evil? How do we, okay, think of your parents. How are you gonna conquer their evil? <laughs> How are you going to eradicate evil out of your parents or something? You extend mercy. You extend mercy. That's how you get rid of evil. It's the only way. Um, a few years ago, we had a, uh, we had a Vancouver Canuck uh, in our church. And... He phoned me up one day and he said, hey, I, uh, somebody gave me some free uh, snowmobile tickets. Do you want to, I got two free tickets, do you want to go? And I thought, yes, never been on a snowmobile, so sure, thank you very much. I said Debbie could go, Debbie wasn't able to go. So I said, hey, Ty, do you want to uh, go uh, snowmobiling? He goes, sure, let's do it. So I went up, uh, it's okay, mountain biking's better. But, uh, but we, went, uh, we went snowmobiling. And then we finish, and then what I, I often do with my kids, I'm driving home and I ask Tyler, so, uh, so how are we doing? You know, is there anything you want to tell me? Is there anything that I need to, uh, you know, need to work on or I just am open? I know I'm an evil father. I didn't say that part, but I think it. And so I just want to give you space to be able to, to tell me how we're doing. And then he said something that very, very much gripped me. And it'll be hard to say it without getting emotional. But he says, Dad, if you would have asked me that question a couple years ago, he said, I would have had a bit of a list for you. There's some things that I would have, I, I would have wanted to tell you. He says, uh, I don't need to tell you those things anymore. You're a great dad, and I love you just the way you are. That moment was life-changing for me. <clears throat> it bugged me that he had a list. But, uh, but anyways, um, <laughs> a little bit hard. But uh, it's a true list. <clears throat> I thought, my son's growing up. 
because his view of authority wasn't they had to be great, but they get changed if I extend mercy. I don't know about you, that's incredibly radical. Incredibly radical. Here's what you need to hear. Human authorities belittle you. They do this. Human authorities do this. They don't do this. They're attracted to this. They belittle you. They exercise authority over you, enemy. There's only one thing more powerful than their position over you, and it's the mercy of God. And when you and I grab a hold of mercy, we're free from their misuse of power. We're free. Listen, this will set you free. You have a difficult relationship. I, I just again in the Surrey Church, uh, people come up afterwards and they tell me their story of their relationship with their parents. And you have stories and I have stories and it breaks your heart. You listen to what some of us have had to go through. It's not right. It's not right. How do you get free? How do you get free of that cloud that feels like it defines the rest of your life, that you were called an idiot or worse things were done to you? How do you get free of that? Freedom is found through forgiveness. More than that, dignity is restored. There is a dignity that comes into our soul when we exercise mercy toward another person. We're now walking in authority. Not the authority of human power, but the authority of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. In Colossians 2.15, this is speaking about Jesus. Having disarmed, this is a, this is a big word, not limited, or having disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public, a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, triumphing over them by what? The cross. How do you defeat powers and authorities? Through the mercy of God. It's the only victory that we have over the sin in us and over the sin that was committed against us is through mercy. If you have been and we all have been mistreated by human authority, our only freedom and restoration of dignity is through the forgiveness of sins. And now we're no longer under their control. We're now walking in the freedom and authority of Jesus Christ. And his authority is always greater than theirs. And that allows us to walk with dignity and sympathy toward our neighbor, toward our enemy. Do you follow me on that? Can you see the power of it? Think of somebody. It's the only way to get free from injustice. Think about somebody who's hurt you. How are you going to get free? You're going to go and talk to them. Tell them how you really feel. And they'll never be able to say sorry well enough. They never are. Because there's no way that they're going to fully grasp how much they hurt your soul. It's not going to happen. But when you forgive, you're free. 
And now you walk in a freedom that now leads them, is kind to them, gives what they need. In conclusion, ungodly authorities are not our worst bondage. The whole context of Exodus 20 is Jesus setting people free from Egyptians, which if you haven't heard, I mean, modern Egyptians, I'm just talking about those Egyptians, uh, bad, just beaten. So bad authority, right? And what does every uh, Hebrew person think? I've got one problem, and it's Egyptians. That's my only problem. So they actually get their dream come true. They get to be delivered from Egyptian bondage. They go, God is good. We're finally delivered. This is amazing. And then God, in his infinite wisdom, knows that there's a greater enemy yet to be defeated. And it's the God of self in their own hearts. And unless they are delivered from that God, they will never be free from sin. And so he did it for thousands of years through the Bible. And my friends, he's still doing it today. He delivers us from a worse ruler, otherwise known as us, the God of self. He delivers us from our bondage to our sinful nature through extending mercy to those who treat us unjustly. It is true that the pain that you have experienced from other people in authority over you is undeserved pain. It's undeserved. And you shouldn't have ever been treated that way. You didn't deserve it. But here's what happens. The enemy uses that pain to stir our pride. And our pride is worse than any of the pain that we ever had to endure from someone else. And God wants to deliver us from our pride through the act of being forgiven and extending forgiveness so we can walk in the freedom that he achieved on the cross that we're looking forward to celebrating next week. Receiving and giving Jesus' mercy liberates us from the kingdom of self. God uses imperfect authorities to deliver us. So uh, when we think about our lives, you're on a continuum. What do you hope to communicate to the next generation? What legacy do they get to build upon? Fighting for personal rights? Don't let anybody tell you what to do. You're your own person. You know what's best for you. Or let's extend the mercy of God, who, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's build our relationship on his love. Let's give that away to the next generation that we could see the kingdom of God come through our families. 
come through our churches. That Rome, that Canada, North America, that the world would be transformed by the love of God. If we could redeem authority with mercy, we would extend the kingdom of God. And would you please join me in that mission? Just would like to close with, um, just because I'm thinking about Dr. Bachmuel. Um, I was in a uh, I was in a study group with him, which meant it was just a, a smaller group, and he would invite us students over to his house, and we would have tea. I don't like tea, but we would have tea, and uh, he would just hang out with us. We'd have tea and cookies, and he would tell us stories. They were incredible stories. And then I, I remember one time he's speaking to this, maybe five students there, and we're in his living room. And he says, uh, he says, let me tell you about how I think about you as my students. He says, I see in front of the church a huge wall. And he says, that wall is, is too high for me to climb over. And I'll never climb over that wall. I won't. But he says, and this is the words that he used, he says, but I see myself as a jackass, a donkey in the kingdom of God. And he says, um, he says, I believe that God has given me a purpose and I am to, uh, to stand against the wall. And if you would be so kind, it would be my privilege if you would climb on my back and jump over the wall. I'll never see what's on the other side. But if you would do that, my mission will be complete. And he died while I was writing my master's thesis. He died of cancer when he was in his early 50s. And I think about him all the time. And I pray that I could continue on his legacy. Not building a kingdom for myself, but building the kingdom of God that redeems authority with love and mercy. Can we please be known for this? Let's stand together, worship team. Father, we stand here recognizing at least two things. Recognizing all the wrong that's been done to us, especially by authority figures. Misusing their God-given position. And so we say, God, forgive them. And then we recognize that we've actually misused our authority. And we've said and done things as parents, as bosses. We've done things and we've misused our authority. And so we ask that the evil in our hearts, in the hearts of others, would be triumphed over through the cross of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would set us free 
from the sins that we've committed, from the sins that have been committed against us, that you would set us free by your mercy. Give us the humility to not demand justice, press for our rights, but may we be found in the legacy of the church that dies for our enemies and entrusts our soul to Jesus Christ. Let us please, God, it would be our greatest privilege to be known for this and to pass on this kind of legacy. We present ourselves to you in the fear of the Lord. Let's worship him.